Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. We continue with our series on the second half of American history with our 15th podcast. In the 14th podcast, I finished up my review of the American presidency, specifically looking at the importance of Secret Service and the drastic toll that the job of being president of the United States can have on our past presidents. We also looked at the Congress, the bureaucracy, and most importantly out of that part, the Pendleton Civil Services Act, which allowed for federal regulation of what became known as the Interstate Commerce Act and the Sherman Antitrust Act. So in this 15th podcast, we're going to segue now into a time period, an era, if you want to call it, that would not have been possible had it not been for the Industrial Revolution. And that would become known as the Progressive Era. In the average American history textbook, it gives the years of the Progressive Era 1900 to 1917. While I don't have any disagreements as to the year when it started, 1900 give or take, the fact of the matter is we'll find out progressivism did not end in 1917. It's just the way that the authors of our American history textbooks like to compartmentalize our various time periods that we cover. The fact of the matter is that the progressivism, as we're going to find out, is alive and well, depending upon your perspective, all the way through to the 21st century. So looking back there, then why do we stop then in 1917? Because then we have to move to the next major phase in American history, and that would become our involvement with what became known as World War I, initially called the Great War. So from here then, we're going to take a look back at this time period when the Progressive Era began by looking at the catalysts of reform. Simply put, and let's just unpack it, what do we mean when we say the progressive era? Is it was the advancement of ideas that sought reform. Please note within that definition, though, again, I'll repeat it, the advancement of different ideas that sought reform. It was not, number one, it was not an actual movement. Movement implies a point person, a goal, an endpoint, and on we and on we go from there. It wasn't an actual movement because of the second reason. There was no unifying organization or leadership. Progressives were going to be tackling a host of different problems that were developing in American society as it continued to muddle through what was becoming to be known as the industrial age. The seeds were sown right at the birth of the Industrial Revolution. Americans were going to be facing problems and challenges that never would have been possible before the advent of what became known as modern machinery. 
How did these nobodies, how would these commoners, John and Jane Q. Public, how would they have been able to even broadcast to the world the problems that they were facing? Because it wasn't them. It was the reporters, journalists, authors, a group that a future president came to label the muckrakers. These are individuals that get into the muck, they get into the mud, and they stir up trouble by talking about stories that the average commoner doesn't need to know or read about. But the fact of the matter is, they do. Through their writing in magazines, extremely popular magazines of the day, and newspaper articles, the muckrakers were able to disseminate the stories of the challenges and hardships of the working class to people around the United States, and by extension, the world. Books like The Octopus by Frank Norris attacked the corporate giants. The Jungle by Upton Sinclair attacked the Chicago meatpacking business, as well as the different problems that capitalism was putting on to the average worker. One might wonder, how can printed media explain things differently than the traditional word of mouth? And the key to this were, and they were not always available because of how expensive they were at the time, but the key to much of the influence, significant influence that these journalists had is when they were able to slip in either a stencil drawing, a print, or eventually a black and white picture, and eventually after that, a color picture of the victims or the people that they were talking about. A case in point when I covered this for my classes in American history, I bring up the idea of the coal mines. One doesn't even have to have been a history student to understand why coal mining could be so dangerous. We know that the miners are inside. Fresh air is usually not available. We know the risks of explosion, the risks of dismemberment, of being killed, the dirt, the dirt on one's hands, the dirt that is being ingested into their lungs. We see all that. But again, when I'm describing it, it's just that. It's word of mouth. Oh, maybe I grab a book and I read an excerpt from a coal miner. Well, that's still reading the printed word. It's verbally, right? But then I show them a picture of what we believe to be anywhere from a 12 to 14-year-old boy who is standing next to railroad tracks that lead into the coal mine. And on those railroad tracks, this boy is standing. And what I tell my students to focus on is his arms. Why? Because he's missing his hands. The boy's hands were cut off by the rail cars as they were coming down the tracks. And he had to throw the switch to throw to make sure that one ore car went in one direction and the other ore car went in a different direction. This young man probably using his good arm, whether he was left or right-handed, eventually, whether it be for, from fatigue, working 8 to 10 to 14 hours a day in the coal mines, eventually he pulled his hand away a little too slowly, and it was cut off by the coming rail car. The wound would be cauterized, he'd be sent home for the day, his pay would be docked, but he would be expected to show up the next day.
and the next day he did show up for work. And he now is using his not-so-good arm or hand, and it wouldn't be long before, once again, he couldn't pull his arm out fast enough. Now he's lost both forearms and hands. What does the coal miner owner do? The coal mine owner? He, nothing he really can do. There's no OSHA in these days. There's no intervention. There's no lawsuits. He simply cauterizes the wound and sends the boy back home, this time for good, because he can't work anymore with no hands. What does mom do? The average person today would want to reach out with both arms and grab this young man, sit him down, and tell him he's loved and he's going to stay with us. But that couldn't happen in these times. The average middle-class worker was barely making enough money to put food on the table seven nights a week, barely able to keep themselves clothed. Now you're going to take a 12 to 14-year-old appetite, a 12 to 14-year-old set of demands for clothing and other goods without bringing in income? These young men would have to be forced to be more or less on their own. They would be shoved out of the house with, I would like to think, a mom that is beyond distraught. But there's nothing she can do. She has to be able to feed the rest of the family from the meager wages that her husband is bringing home. Think about what life would be like on your own as this young man heads to the major cities. Why? Because that's where the greater population is. Think about this young boy begging on the street corners. He's not begging for money per se because money by and large isn't going to do him any good. He literally couldn't even hold the money. Sure, you can shove it in his pocket. And in that particular picture, there is money in his pocket from a heartful passerby who probably put it there, who obviously put it there. But think about when he wants to go on now and buy something that he has to turn around and an attempt to get an honest vendor who will be able to take the money out of his pocket and give him the right amount of change and give him some food to eat. But mind you, the food by itself really isn't going to do him any good. He technically needs to have it fed to him. There's no way he's going to be able to make, to do that on his own. So again, I can show that I can talk to the students and tell them all about how, how working in the coal mine can actually be a safe, productive way of life. In other words, playing good cop, bad cop. But then I can also show them a picture of that coal miner. Well, late listeners, you know darn well, I don't stand a chance on trying to convince my students that coal mining wasn't as bad as it was cracked up to be when they lay their eyes on the picture of that young man. Which leads us then, this is just one, er uh, one area that progressivism was tackling, child labor and also was the unequal wages between men and women. It was the pollution in the streets, pollution in the water, political corruption. Progressivism was tackling all the ills of society, some with greater success than others. Leading us to the question then, is it over? Is the progressive era done and behind us? Is it even still needed? Well, you don't have to go back too far in our own American history about the woman who opened up a can of tuna fish to find a little organism looking back at her 
blinking its eyes because of live food that made its way into the tuna can? Or how about the corporation that made peanut butter for a majority of the big-name peanut butter vendors that we have in America? When people were leaving there, quitting their jobs because of how unsanitary the working conditions were, holes in the roof where water was pouring down, varmints and critters and vermin running all over the place, all of that, again, is why the progressives are still needed in their own way to bring to light or shed light on these abuses. However, one doesn't have to be too cynical to understand why the delay in reporting abuses? Why in some cases is it wasn't it reported, re- reported at all? Well, needless to say that in order for these to be reported by the federal government as regulation begins to kick in, these individuals could be bought off. They could possibly be intimidated. There's a host of reasons why abuses sometimes won't be reported at all, or at least delayed to the detriment of the health of the buyers of the consumers. Reform does kick in with child labor. The Children's Bureau was established to monitor and resolve reported abuses as of 1912. In 1914, a minimum working age would be established, but not at a federal level, but at a state level, which is the reason they would be variable. But please know that the big challenge to the moms and dads trying to get their children to work when there was re- when there's reports of underage workers, oftentimes it wasn't the employer. It was the mom and dad who desperately needed the income and lied about their children's age in order to possibly get them a job. So often says, oh, please know when you hear about the abuses of child labor, it wasn't always corporate America's fault. Sometimes it was nothing more than a mom and dad lying about the kid's age with the absence of in this day, of course, of birth certificates and common documents to prove when somebody was born. Pretty easy to lie about one's age in order to get them into the workplace. Within the progressive era, public education would become standardized. School attendance would now be required and tracked. Grade levels would be broken down, preferably into individual rooms based on age. Again, it's not a perfect system. It didn't, it wasn't able to address all ills of society within the Young's uh, academia. But nevertheless, it was an attempt to try to organize the education system in America and recognizing the way that the brain functions a little bit differently between an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, and a 10-year-old. Admittedly, on the surface, that's true. But are we also not aware of the maturity that some individuals, some different students have? The way to a certain extent we can have an eight-year-old but has the capacity of a 15-year-old in terms of math, but reading and writing they're not much beyond a five-year-old. How do you educate an, a student like that? Educate them enough, or in a way that challenges them without intimidating or scaring them or turning them off to learning, but in a way that they also don't get bored. How do you mainstream an individual student like that with the rest of the bulk of the students that do learn at the regular rates of learning of the reading, writing, math, etc., that are broken down based on age. Teacher training would now be required. 
An individual, a female specifically, that had a pulse is able to teach because she wanted to wouldn't be allowed anymore. There would have to, a curriculum would be established to make sure that the teacher at least knew what the students needed to know, if not, of course, a little bit more. Uh, the idea of school nurses would also be investigated at this time and the need for that. As long as the progressives were going after the ills of society, it wasn't really a surprise, therefore, that their eyes, their objectives would eventually fall on to what many believe to be the root cause of crime, poverty, and violence in American history. Any idea as we're heading into the 1910s, what would be the root cause of crime, poverty, and violence? Pause here if you want to think about it. And if you're coming back or you're just listening right through, you got it. That's going to be none other than, as they called it at the time, drink. Drink. Drink can be a verb and it can be a noun. But when it's used derisively, linked to crime, poverty, and violence, they know they're not talking about individuals that don't drink enough water or drink too much water. No, of course, they are talking about the consumption of alcohol, of liquor. The prohibition movement would start to gain traction in the 1910s with the progressive era raging. Congress eventually would pass the 18th Amendment on January 17, 1920, stating that the manufacture and sale of liquor was prohibited from that point forward, later on from that point forward. And we'll talk more about that because, as we know, prohibition doesn't last all that long in the United States. In fact, prohibition eventually becomes so unpopular that the 18th Amendment would be the first one and only amendment so far in America's history to actually be repealed. More about that when we get there. But considering that that was the 18th Amendment, let's push it up one to the 19th Amendment, passed in 1920 as well, and that was giving the woman the ability to vote. Four years later, Indians, the Indian Citizenship Act would pass, giving Native Americans the right to vote. And I want to pause it here to be able to just remind my listeners that this, this was significant progress in the right to vote in the United States, that prior to 1920, still only men could vote in federal elections. Please note the way I said federal. In state elections, states had their own rights to own right to pass laws giving the woman the ability to vote or Native Americans the right to vote in their own respective states. And for that reason, states, for example, like Wyoming out west, the woman in Wyoming had the right to vote for decades prior to the passage of the 19th Amendment. But it would be at a federal level that a woman could walk into any polling place now and vote for our United States senators, our representatives, and most importantly, our presidents of the United States and should be able to unhindered. But again, you think about that, the fact that a black man had the right to vote in the late 1860s, but politicians would not give their own wives, their own daughters and mothers the right to vote for well over a half a century later. It's astounding when one thinks about it. 
But the main reason for the cause of the trep- or the the concerns or trepidation of male politicians giving the woman the right to vote was the fear that religion would be unduly influencing their minds, as though in their own minds they couldn't separate church from state, as though the men could. But that was the primary reason. So by 1924, we have females voting in the United States, and in 1924, male and female Native Americans having the right to vote. We're not done yet. There will be one more major change in terms of who could vote in federal elections, but that's not going to be for another 51 years after 1920, and that, of course, would be 1971, when we lower the voting age from 21 to 18. More about that, of course, when we get there. At this time, too, please know that progressivism is considered the era on which Teddy Roosevelt, will the first of two Roosevelts, will waltz into the White House in perhaps one of the most unexpected ways. Teddy Roosevelt was an outspoken Republican, unlike his cousin that would eventually take the White House, I should say his nephew that would take the White House, that being Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt was a Hyde Park Democrat. He was from Hyde Park, New York. Teddy Roosevelt was the Oyster Bay Republicans. So they were the same Roosevelt large family, but there were different political affiliations. Teddy Roosevelt Again, outspoken, it seemed to be that the, no matter what political position he attained, all the way up to governor of New York, police commissioner before that, that he had the ability to rough things up to try to get reform measures through, making some Republican leaders uncomfortable with him. So they persuaded the then president, Theodore McKinley, to take Roosevelt on as the vice president. Why? Because more or less the vice presidency is perhaps one of the largest do-nothing jobs in Washington, D.C. Sure, it's one step away from the presidency, but by and large, as stated by the Constitution, all the vice president does is preside over the Senate, and in those rare circumstances, there's a 50-50 vote, he casts the breaking tie. Oh, that's real exciting. Yet, surprisingly, Teddy Roosevelt took it, and the Republicans breathed a sigh of relief. That was, of course, until September of 1901, when William McKinley was shot and later died. Vice President Roosevelt was now President Roosevelt. McKinley was shot in Buffalo, New York. Teddy Roosevelt was not with him. He was at an an outdoor fair. When, a, when his would-be assassin came up and unloaded a weapon in his abdomen, killing him where he died of those wounds not long after. Later, Teddy Roosevelt would come to Buffalo, New York, and I actually had the opportunity to go into the house that Teddy Roosevelt was staying, where he took the oath of office as the 26th president of the United States. Now, Republicans had nothing to do except say, yes, sir, when now President Roosevelt started passing his legislative agendas through. But before he tackled business, he started getting into the executive branch itself, where he reorganized the executive branch. 
by establishing commissions and bureaus to push ahead this required progressive agenda. The Republicans were aghast. Why are you more or less acquiescing to these to the journalists, to these muckrakers, as you, President uh, President Roosevelt, once called them? Because as he said, that's why I'm going to do this, because I'm also establishing a White House press room, which still exists to this day. If Teddy Roosevelt blamed the press for, quote unquote, mucking up society, why would he literally create a room for them in the White House? Because as the saying goes, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. Who could get a pass to join the White House press corps? Teddy Roosevelt, of course, gave that. Teddy Roosevelt, when he he approached the press, said that if anybody passes a story, prints a story that is untrue, I will not have you back. I will cut your entire newspaper, magazine, or journal out of the White House grounds. I'll cast you away for that. One might say, well, wait a minute, isn't that breaching the First Amendment rights? But remember, we're just beginning now to have the press following the President of the United States. Journalists, newspapers owners, magazine owners, journal owners, they were beyond positively impressed to have one of the reporters actually have a seat inside the White House proper. But as Teddy Roosevelt said, when current events unfold, before the press is out there trying to figure out what happened, I would rather have a first say in my perspective on the way things went down. At least I would get my say, my opinion, in print first. For the most part, the journalists were fair to Teddy Roosevelt. He often joked with them. He had a good rapport, a good relationship with them. Moving ahead into the future, every future president of the United States will at one time or another grind their teeth and or gnash their teeth, as they say, and wail about President Roosevelt. Why did you invite them into the White House? Because they are here to stay, admittedly. But if managed correctly, if being open and fair with the press, more often than not, the presidents will have better coverage, far more than they have negative coverage. So within the White House rearranging, Teddy Roosevelt also had an issue with You could pause it right here if you want to have a guess with what group of people he was having a real hard time with. And my guess is you could guess a hundred times and you'd never find out the one group of people that he was just having the hardest time trying to control. And that was none other than his own children. Teddy Roosevelt's first wife died at the same day, ironically enough, as his mother died. His mother died upstairs and his wife died on the main floor of different, for different reasons. And they died in 1882, ironically enough, on the same day, February 14th. When his wife died, they already had one daughter, Alice. Teddy Roosevelt, between losing his mom and losing his wife on the same day, had today what we would most likely call or most likely uh, diagnose as a nervous breakdown. He had to get out of the East Coast. He had to get away from politics. He had to get away from his family 
his friends, extended family, his friends. That's when he took off out to Wyoming, out west, where he bought some ranches and he became a rancher for a while. In the summer of 2021, I had the opportunity to see the area where Teddy Roosevelt once called the one of the greatest paradises that the United States had to offer. However, the political bug eventually continued to infect him more and more, and he did return east. He met his uh, lovely woman who would eventually become his second wife, and they had more children. Currently, there are just under 100 children to have lived at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. But at one time, nobody had more children in the White House than Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt's problem was not so much that he couldn't discipline his children. Teddy Roosevelt's problem is he didn't want to. He simply wanted to play with them. Ironically enough, it was his wife that had the wherewithal to realize, Teddy, you are the president of the United States. You cannot play with your kids in the middle of the day. There was a story that became well-published later on. It wasn't necessarily a slam to him, but there was an ambassador from Asia who was meeting with him in the Oval Office of the White House, the last original Oval Office that the president will use. And Teddy Roosevelt saw his kids in the hallway and the ambassador needed the men's room, got up and left. And when the ambassador came back in, Teddy Roosevelt wasn't anywhere to be found. What was more surprising to the ambassador is these kids that were running around the office paying no attention to the ambassador until finally one of the kids said, there you are, daddy. And sure enough, the president of the United States is standing behind a very long drape that was covering the windows. Teddy Roosevelt, president of the United States, was playing hide and go seek with his children. His wife threw a fit. The ambassador is here and you still are playing with the kids. And that's when he said, honey, I can be the president of the United States or I can be a father to these kids, but I cannot do it at the same time in a given day. And that's when his wife pushed him with the idea to create a set of offices adjacent to the White House, but yet separated by several doors so that the children could be kept in one area and the president could do his work in, the, in another area. That annex of offices became what we call today the West Wing. So that is yet another contribution that Teddy Roosevelt was to provide for the people of the United States. What did he do now when he's in office? That's what we're going to pick up with in the next podcast. Thanks for listening.